Well, I'm out. I'm out of COVID isolation. I'm out, baby. I made it. I did it. I came out the other side. Here I am in the rain, which is uh, what Sydney and much of the east coast of Australia is enduring in ridiculous quantities at the moment. This is the thing about Australia. We are either on fire or we're underwater. Those are your two options. That's all you get. Uh, Maybe an occasional third option is we're being eaten by a crocodile or bitten by one of the world's deadliest spiders or snakes. But that's really infrequent. Uh, What we are not doing is riding to work or school on the back of kangaroos. That's a popular misconception. Uh, But what we are doing is either self-igniting in an ungodly firestorm or being swept away by floodwaters as we currently are. And this is summer, ladies and gentlepersons, summer. So my thoughts go out to everyone around Australia if you're being affected, if you're home or your livelihood is affected by the floods. Uh, I think it's a first world problem for me to whinge about being stuck inside in the rain with COVID, but allow me to whinge nonetheless. It's my damn show. I'll whinge about what I want. Been interesting having COVID. It was mild, very mild, as I hope yours was as well, if you've had it. Um, Nonetheless, unpleasant. Uh, A lot of uh, tiredness, fatigue, grouchiness, grumpiness, irritability. Those last three factors might just be my personality, I'm not sure. Uh, But the the disease certainly didn't help, let's put it that way. Um, I certainly feel like I'm living in a position of enormous privilege in comparison to the calamity that's unfolding on the other side of the planet, which is going to be the subject of not only this episode, but a number of episodes in the near future. I'm trying to line up as many interesting voices about Ukraine as I can, as many interesting voices about the mindset of Monsieur Putin as I can. And I certainly don't think that this is a time for us to be engaging in second-guessing whether or not the West has inadvertently caused this crisis by not having been nice enough to Vladimir Putin over the years. And it's certainly not a time for us to be kvetching about our own geopolitical involvement. I won't get into all this now, but suffice it to say, I saw a great tweet by a libertarian writer named Jen Munro, who said, I don't want to hear a single, but it's not our problem, from the crowd who just absolutely lost its shit over the Canadian trucker protest. And that's sort of how I feel. Ukraine is not some geopolitical abstraction. It's 44 million people who get up in the morning and scratch their bums, just like 44 million people anywhere else. It's 44 million people who have had a realistic expectation that their country is on a trajectory to becoming a cosmopolitan and open and urbane and sophisticated member of the European Union. They have a reasonable expectation that they're about to become Poland and beyond Poland, maybe, who knows, someday, maybe even Austria. And all of that has just been detonated overnight. So now is not the time for us to be talking about this as if we're chess pieces on a chessboard. It's been interesting convalescing in bed with COVID and seeing the Twitter storm, not just about Ukraine, but the persistent Twitter storm about vaccines and COVID, whenever I say the slightest, tiniest thing about it, 
And let me just address two things that have come up because I haven't been able to, I haven't, I, you know, I made a decision on about day number two of COVID that the worst thing, the only thing worse than having COVID while your city around you floods and Ukraine gets invaded is having COVID while your city around you floods and Ukraine gets invaded and spending your time with COVID arguing with shitwads on Twitter. So I decided not to, but allow me to address a couple of their points in as nuanced and sophisticated a manner as I can right now. Firstly, fuck off. Secondly, all I did was tweet the following. I said, thank God for vaccines, or rather, thank God for scientists, researchers, and drug companies. Countless people like me are experiencing COVID as a mild cold right now. Without the jab, many of us would be choking on our own lungs. Not all of us, I wrote. Not most of us, I wrote. But many millions. I am grateful. That's all I tweeted. Because that's how I felt. I felt an enormous sense of deep gratitude to people who devote their lives to the science of infectious diseases. That what started two years ago as a real boogeyman is now something that I was just never worried about. There was no point at which after testing positive, I thought, fuck, maybe I could end up in hospital. Maybe I could end up on a ventilator. Now, admittedly, I'm youngish and healthy, so that was never a high risk in the first place. But when you multiply a not very high risk by billions of people, that's a lot of body bags. Needless to say, that tweet did not go down so well with a number of tweeters. On the more whimsical side, Someone tweeted back at me and said, uh, mildly incorrect, Omicron without the vaccine is an upper respiratory tract infection and acts like the cold in the vast majority of cases. Vaccination is one of the lesser important variables. Obesity, vitamin D deficiency, and dysglycemia are better predictors of poor outcome. Which I retweeted with the exchange, me, thanks for the gift. You, you're welcome. Him, actually, of all the variables that could have made you happy, a physical gift is less impactful than a healthy diet, a good night's sleep, and correct posture. Your gratitude is mildly incorrect. And everyone else started piling on. One person made a legitimate point. Look, all of these points are vaguely legitimate. I think people are being motivated by their sense that people have become way too obsessed about the vaccines, especially people who think that everyone should be vaccinated. And may I say right now, I have never been in, in favour of universal mandatory vaccination. I don't believe in mandating vaccination for everybody. I believe in strongly encouraging it. I believe in mandating it for certain industries like healthcare and the police. My uncle just celebrated his 90th birthday. I don't think it's reasonable to put him in a situation where the next time he encounters a healthcare professional he doesn't know whether or not they're vaccinated he doesn't have a choice but to encounter them or for him to feel like if he ever needs the police the police might come in bearing what for him would be a quite probably deadly virus he should know that members of the state are not going to infect him with a deadly pathogen but overall I don't believe in forcing people to do things so I understand the reticence about that and one person tweeted at me and said in 2020 when no one was vaxxed the percentage of asymptomatic positive cases was 30%, likely much higher 
Now, in 2022, anyone positive who has mild symptoms feels certain that it was the vaccine that saved them, even after the Pfizer CEO stated that the jabs do very little for the current strain. Let me just address that particular misconception. A furphy, as we call it in Australia. A furphy is Australian slang for a bit of nonsense. I take the point that now everybody who experiences COVID as a cold who's vaccinated attributes it to the vaccines when they don't necessarily know that they themselves specifically benefited from the vaccine in terms of it being milder. What we're talking about is aggregate numbers, which I'll get to in a sec. But let me just address this, this furphy about the Pfizer CEO stating that vaccines do very little because this has become something that the vaccine hesitant wheel out at every opportunity. The Pfizer CEO didn't say that. Here's what he said verbatim. I looked it up. He said, we know that the two doses of the vaccine offer very limited protection, if any. The three doses with a booster, they offer reasonable protection against hospitalization and deaths. Against deaths, he said, I think the three doses are very good and they provide less protection against infection. Now, we're working on a new version of our vaccine that will cover Omicron as well. And of course, we're waiting to get the final results, but the vaccine will be ready in March and the vaccine will be able to produce it on a massive scale. He was winging it in a live interview. English is his second language. He didn't make himself perfectly clear, but it's obvious that the gist of what he's saying is that because the vaccines were developed before Omicron, two two doses doesn't really cut it. It's a three dose regimen now. But he's just saying that he needs to tweak the vaccine before he can be as confident about it against Omicron as he was against uh, previous variants in, on, by all measurements, including infection. It's not true that the Pfizer CEO said that it doesn't work against the current variant. So there's that. Now let's loop back to this question of aggregate statistics, because this is one of two issues that people keep raising with me on Twitter about vaccines that I want to put to rest. I tweeted out about what my COVID symptoms were, which if you're interested, I tweeted, my COVID is mild, but to those who've been asking, it has so far unfolded as day one, did a rodent poo in my mouth. Day two, I have jet lag, yet no airplane. Day three, let there be be phlegm. Day four, an army of throat pixies has hijacked my cough reflex. Day five, a donkey sits on my chest. Now, admittedly, it was a a small donkey. It didn't feel like a very bad uh, weight on my chest, but it was a significant weight on my chest nonetheless. And it caused one person to tweet at me, thinking he's very smart, saying, say the line, it would have been far worse without the shot. Laughy face, laughy face, laughy face. To which I said, we know that when a 1,000 vaccinated people catch COVID, 10 to 30 times fewer of them get seriously sick than the group, the same group unvaccinated. And this experiment has been replicated in real life millions of times all over the globe. So luckily, science works whether I say your stupid line or not. And then someone else said, given that the vast majority of under 50s without comorbidities had asymptomatic or mild cases without vaccines, how do you know that the vaccine helped you? And someone else parachuted in and said, this is the argument that nobody touches. To which I replied, nobody touches it because it's an argument nobody denies. Of course, I don't know that the vaccine helped me, just as you don't know that washing your hands after you shit definitely saved you from disease. Public health measures 
function in the aggregate. And this guy came back and said, in the aggregate, you were unlikely to have more than mild symptoms. To which I said, that's not what an aggregate is. I, it's sort of immaterial whether or not I would have been worse off if I hadn't had the vaccines. It's a counterfactual that we'll never have the answer to. What we know is that if you multiply a thousand me's and you put them through the experience of having COVID and a thousand and five hundred of them are vaccinated and five hundred of them are unvaccinated, you get a very different result. It is like washing hands. I mean, everyone, you can always say, oh, my uncle Herbie always used to wash his hands. But you know what? He's been on the shitter for a week. He's had explosive diarrhea. Clearly, there was no benefit to washing his hands. No, it just means that washing his hands weren't 100 percent effective. Which brings me to the second criticism that people have on Twitter and everywhere, which is that it's not a real vaccine because it doesn't actually stop me from getting it. Tons of people, thousands of people have hit me up saying, whoa, you must be eating humble pie now that you've got COVID after you've been banging on about how effective vaccines are. I mean, if it was actually a vaccine like the smallpox vaccine or the polio vaccine and not an experimental therapy that Bill Gates is injecting us all with, then you wouldn't have caught it in the first place. Obviously, the vaccines don't work. I'd love to know where this idea came from. Can someone trace the etymology of this? Or if you know of where it comes from, can you, can you point it out to me on Twitter or send an email to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com and my producer will pass it along? Because it's a fascinating thing. Where does, it, where does the idea come from that if a vaccine is not 100% perfect, then it's not a vaccine? Like, is a seatbelt not a seatbelt if you die in a car accident while you're wearing a seatbelt? Why does something have to be 100% perfect? There are some vaccines that eliminate transmission and there are some vaccines that reduce transmission. The coronavirus vaccines roughly halve transmission. That means that I, had to in, I went through a number of scenarios over the past six months in which I was exposed to coronavirus, almost certainly. I was standing in security lines at Austin Airport and at LaGuardia. I'm sure I was exposed to coronavirus and the dosage was not enough to infect my vaccinated body, but would have been enough in some of those scenarios, quite likely, to infect my unvaccinated body. It's not a perfect vaccine. It's an effective vaccine nonetheless. And so here I am surrounded by flooding rainwaters. I've just broadcast my first show back on the air. I have a radio show on ABC Radio in Australia in the afternoons. I've been off for a week in isolation, in recuperation, and I'm not allowed back into the studio, so I've had this broadcast kit that they've sent to my home, and I'm broadcasting remotely. I feel completely out of my element a very difficult show to do away from all of the support structures that I have in the studio where I have command of all the buttons that I'm used to. Here I'm just cast adrift. I felt like a, an astronaut in a spaceship just floating off through space. Just me and my microphone and Sandra Bullock looking at each other. Me complimenting her on her outstanding plastic surgery. Very convincing nose. And her saying, I can't believe you are broadcasting like this all alone from a broadcast kit without the normal support structures of your studio, Josh Sepps. And I said, thank you, Sandra. And then we kissed in a, in a violent embrace, an embrace born of my week of isolation. Perhaps that's just me getting carried away with my fantasies. But there you go. 
back on the air, as I alluded to earlier, I want to find as many people who are interesting about Ukraine as possible, and we will release episodes in dribs and drabs. Uh, so hopefully you'll find those enlightening. I think now more than ever is a time when we have to have conversations with each other that are informed conversations with each other that come from a bunch of different perspectives, from not just the American security establishment and not just the self-flagellating uh, extremes of the kind of extreme left and extreme right horseshoe ends who end up saying exactly the same thing, both blaming the West for everything that goes wrong in the world, but conversations that are informed by the reality of Central Europeans having agency by the reality of Ukrainians deserving our consideration as autonomous human beings, not just as pieces on a grand geostrategic chess board. Conversations that are smart, thoughtful, diverse, and yes, sometimes conversations that are a bit uncomfortable. Today on the show, what does the United States really think about Putin and Ukraine? If it is even possible to generalize about what Uncle Sam is thinking, what does that even mean? I can't think of anyone else who embodies that worldview better than Elliot Cohen. Elliot is, you might call him a neoconservative. Uh, he's been influential in foreign policy circles and military thinking for decades. Uh, he has, uh, he's a Harvard grad originally way back, uh, got a P, got his PhD in political science in 1982. Uh, then went to, to MIT and, uh, did, did the army's ROTC program, uh, which is the reserve officers training corps and subsequently has served in well, worked for the Secretary of Defense, uh, taught at the Naval War College, uh, ended up in uh, the George W. Bush administration working for the Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. Uh, after 9-11, he was uh, a, a big booster of the war in Iraq, um, a proponent of regime change in Iran, and generally embodies uh, an American worldview that stands in contrast to realism. And if, if you're a bit sort of dusty on your <laughs> geopolitical strategy terminology, it's worth just remembering what realism is in the context of international affairs. It basically says that it's a mistake to look at whether or not a country is doing good or bad things domestically or whether its leader is nice or not nice, whether it's a democracy or a dictatorship. At the end of the day, uh, the world consists of countries who are jostling for power and only by understanding the jostling for wealth and power are you going to understand the way that states behave. So we shouldn't be idealists. We shouldn't um, try to spread democracy in any way. We shouldn't judge uh, a country's actions on the basis of whether or not its leader is a good guy or a bad guy or whether we associate ourselves with the kinds of worldviews that that leader has. At the end of the day, a power is going to behave as a power will behave and we should just accommodate that and live in quote unquote the real world. Elliot thinks that's a stupid point of view point of view. He thinks that the ideas that motivate and energize uh, political leaders matter deeply in terms of the way that they behave on the international stage. So the two things are inseparable. You will hear him launch uh, a, a criticism uh, a scathing criticism of realism and I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what it is that he's talking about. Um, 
I'm interviewing him because he wrote a piece in The Atlantic recently where he is a contributing editor. Oh, I should give you his proper titles now. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, a professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of School of Advanced International Studies, and he holds the Ali Burke Chair in Strategy at uh, CSIS, the Center for Strategic Independent Studies. Uh, his book is The Big Stick, The Limits of Soft Power and the Necessity of Military Force. You can tell from that that he's no wilting flower when it comes to military force. Um, and uh, I basically wanted him not only to give me his perspective about what's going on in Ukraine and what's motivating Putin, but also to sort of respond to something that I'm seeing floating around a lot on social media, which is a kind of a kind of worldview of like, is this really our fight? Isn't it kind of understandable that Russia would want to have influence over its uh, neighbors? Uh, you know, what exactly did we expect when we allowed new countries to join NATO after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War? Uh, isn't this Putin's understandable retaliation against feeling like he's boxed in? Uh, I'll be having conversations with people who hold that worldview or some variant of it in uh, in coming days and coming weeks. This is not a, a topic that's going to go away on this show. But I just wanted to begin with someone who very much doesn't hold that point of view and who can articulate the position, if there is one, of Uncle Sam in all his patriotic glory. Enjoy this conversation with Elliot Cullen. Let's just kick things off by giving people a sense of, of who you are and what your background and, and interests have been. So uh, I'm a uh, professor at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies, which is a Professional School of International Affairs, and I also am uh, the holder of the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which is the leading um, international security think tank in Washington. Uh, I've done, I've mainly been a, an academic most of my life, but I've done other things. Um, I've served sporadically in the United States government. Uh, to include two years as the counselor of the Department of State for the last two years of the George W. Bush administration. Uh, so I was uh, a senior officer of the department, working directly for Secretary Rice, uh, mainly on Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, North Korean nuclear reactors in Syria, a host of issues like that. Uh, I've been a dean. Um, you're one of those people with a biography too long to bother really yeah. going into too much detail. So, but, basically, <laughs> but basically, I'm a, I'm a professor. I'm a, my interests are military history, uh, international affairs, foreign policy, and uh, don't ask me to explain it, but I'm writing a book about Shakespeare. Oh, fantastic. That, uh, I wish we had time to talk about that as well. Yeah. Uh, Elliot, when when the Russian forces were starting to amass on the border of Ukraine in recent months, what did you think was happening? Well, that's actually an interesting question because, um, you know, there were obviously the, the person in charge, and that's the uh, Russian side, is uh, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, there were two different ways of reading him. Uh, one as this very careful chess player who has 
objectives that we can understand in terms of weakening Ukraine, dividing NATO, and so forth, uh, which would have implied a fairly limited kind of strategy of, you know, taking bits and pieces, um, driving Ukraine into a corner, but not provoking uh, the United States and Europe too much. The other view, though, which is actually the view I took, was this is a guy who's been in power for 20 years. He is... um, getting old. He's almost 70. Uh, He does not believe that Ukraine has right to exist as a state. He thinks the West is weak. Um, He has been physically isolated from people for two years. Uh, He has a very, very narrow coterie of people around him uh, whose backgrounds are just like his. Um, And that's, and he's somebody who we know has a high tolerance for risk and for danger. And you add all that up, and my hunch, uh, actually from fairly early on, was that this is a man who was, would be willing, as um, the German chancellor in, said in 1914, to roll the iron dice. And that's what he's done. You said he thinks the West is weak, are we? No, actually, I think, um, look, this is a horrible situation. This is... Uh, it's a humanitarian tragedy. It's there's an enormous amount of civilian suffering, and, and and there's also, by the way, the the lives of hundreds, if not indeed thousands, of Russian kids that are going to get thrown away on this stupid, evil uh, venture. But having said that, um, you know, one of the things that's striking is the strength of the West, and I think uh, people we we've gotten so used to obsessing about the weaknesses of democracy. Uh, the undermining of democracy, that we, we don't marvel enough at what's happened. Um, the United States, led by an administration which is not particularly distinguished and which badly botched the Afghanistan withdrawal, has done a marvelous job of pulling together um, a coalition leading NATO to rediscover its old mission. The uh, states of Europe have behaved uh, with you know very few exceptions, really an exemplary way, I have to say, I'm, uh, you know, for example, I'm struck by the Germans. You know, I had always thought of the Germans as being willing to accommodate the Russians for a variety of reasons, um, some semi-reasonable, some decidedly not reasonable. And all of a sudden, a uh, SPD um, chancellor turns around and says, okay, we're going to cancel Nord Stream 2. We're going to begin shipping thousands of weapons to the Ukrainians. And we're going to spend a sum of money that's twice as large as our entire defense budget on rearmament. And I think what we're seeing here is proof of the underlying vigor of uh, democracy and democratic ideals. And, you know, the West owes a deep debt of gratitude to the Ukrainians because, you know, their courage in standing up to uh, the Russians has brought this out of us. And, you know, we're, um, as I have a piece coming out uh, very shortly, which I say, you know, we're at a moment where we can actually see the hinge of history turning. And it's uh, it's a remarkable thing. So, no, I don't think we're weak at all. Elliot, you you write in your, in your piece in The Atlantic uh, that you tell the anecdote of as you were leaving the State Department and you were a counselor there and you and Condi Rice, who was the Secretary of State, at the time went to a NATO meeting. This is the very, very end of the George W. Bush administration before the Obama administration. And you guys were on the way out and Condi Rice had some 
words for her counterparts, for her European counterparts in, in NATO. Tell us about that. Sure. So we were actually just on our way back from uh, Georgia. Uh, we've been in Tbilisi. This is during the 2008 crisis. And uh, we end up in Brussels and sh- uh, there's a meeting of the foreign ministers, uh, the NATO foreign ministers. And she says to them, look, next year at this time, uh, I'm going to be playing golf in Palo Alto, California. But if you don't do something, you'll be here talking about Ukraine. Uh, her timing was off by a number of years, but the basic point was correct. I mean, we got to this place by looking the other way over Georgia um, over Crimea, uh, over the Donbass, and now we have this. So you can understand why Putin formed the judgments that he did. Um, but I think, you know, at the 11th hour, uh, people have woken up to what the perils are. Let's talk about those uh, about those sort of events that led up to this, because there are various different ways of interpreting them, and I think a lot of listeners will be va- will have vague recollections of Georgia, vague recollections of Crimea. They'll have heard the word Donbass. You know, we've all been doing a lot of googling lately about all of this uh, all of this stuff to refresh our memories. But take us back to the timeline. You guys were talking about Georgia. What did Putin do in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and how did that connect to what he later did in? Crimea and Eastern Ukraine? So I think uh, let's go all the way back to the beginning, which is the fall of communism in, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1989 to 91. And I think the thing to understand is that for somebody like uh, Vladimir Putin, who was a, trained as a KGB agent who had served in the Soviet empire, uh, this was a shocking, terrible event. Uh, not so much the end of communism per se, but the dissolution of the Soviet Union um, and in particular the secession, as it then seemed, of a whole host of national republics, uh, which under communism had had very, very limited autonomy. They had they had some. Um, and I think he and others like him regarded that as completely illegitimate. And they also viewed it with a certain amount of fear because these states, uh, there were several things going on. One, of course, was the fear that they would join NATO and that that alliance would end up on their borders. I think the more serious fear for them is that basically they would become aligned with the West, that they would develop advanced open economies, that they would be democratic and have democratic norms, um, and that there was a serious risk of contagion into into Russia, and is the um, sorry to pause you there, Elliot. Is the is the fear there? Do you think that the contagion somehow de-Russifies Russia and turns everyone into a homogenous Levi jeans wearing sort of rump of American hegemony, or is it is it that that Putin doesn't get to be an authoritarian if there are examples of flourishing Russo adjacent ethnicities who are democratic and having and that the, the color revolution is going to come for him. I, I, it's very much that the color revolution will come to him. You know, if you read uh, Russian writings, uh, including some very sophisticated writings by people like the chief of defense staff, uh, Valery uh, Gerasimov, you see that they interpret the so-called color revolutions, um, uh, these democratic revolutions in uh, these successor republics as having been orchestrated by the West. Now, they weren't. They were spontaneous. 
but they're fearful of them. And do we know that, Elliot? Because even some people in the West sort of suspect that there's probably some assistance from the CIA in getting these things off the ground. You, you know, people have all kinds of fantasies about what the CIA can do. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, and I, I only wish they could. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is you have populations of young people uh, who don't want to live in the kind of system that that Russia is. I doubt that any of your listeners would like to live in that system. You want to live in a system which is not a police state, uh, you know, where you have freedom of speech, where you have multiple political parties. And if you don't like the people in charge, you can throw the bums out. That's the essence of what democracy is yeah. all about. Isn't it? Um, and, you know, and they were in, in almost all these cases, the successor regimes were fairly corrupt. They were old style apparatchiks. They might be nationalist, nationalist apparatchiks who didn't want to be part of the Russian empire, but they were kind of thuggish and uh, kleptocratic. And people didn't want them. So the, the, you know, the basic Russian approach has been to um, destabilize some of these republics by supporting, uh, the, you really see this in both Georgia and the Ukraine, uh, supporting either minorities or uh, Russian-speaking populations. And so uh, making it very difficult for these states destabilizing these states, kind of keeping them off balance, uh, preventing them from really being able to successfully align with the West. Uh, they did that in with regard to Georgia, with regard to two regions, um, Abkhazia, uh, which is a very difficult place even for them to manage, and South Ossetia. And the Georgians really fell into a trap because the, the South Ossetians seceded and uh, we try to persuade the Georgians not to intervene militarily, and they did, and that was the supposed provocation that the Russians were waiting for. Uh, in a similar vein, uh, you know, the, that's the way they operated in Crimea, and it's also the way they operated in uh, the Donbass, where you have Russian-speaking minorities uh, which are quite substantial. Now, the thing that's and just interesting... To, just to remind people, the, the, the Crimea issue... So, I mean, obviously, Georgia and Ukraine were part of the USSR. They came apart when at the end of the Cold War. Uh, Russia has presumably never quite accepted that. At least the Putin mindset hasn't quite. And Crimea is this bit that dangles off the bottom of Ukraine that Russia essentially carved off? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. Actually, Crimea had been part of Russia in the mid-1950s. Nikita Khrushchev, uh, who himself was Ukrainian, uh, made it part of the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic. Um, it has the largest uh, Russian naval base in the Black Sea, which is very historic, um, Sevastopol. So, uh, you know, the first Russian move was to take that. And then... But then, you know, the, to to push and help along uh, separatist movements in the Donbass, which is this mining area, which has had a lot of Russian immigrants and was Russian-oriented. Now, one thing that people may not fully understand is that, I mean, Ukraine is an incredibly, incredibly complicated place. Um, but one of the things that's clearly happened is that there are plenty Whereas there was same ambivalence among some of these populations about being in an independent Ukraine 
versus Russia, that has steadily shifted. Um, and so, for example, even as we speak, the uh, the Russians are besieging uh, Kharkiv, or as the Russians would call it, Kharkov, um, which is predominantly a Russian-speaking city, and they're meeting enormous resistance. They're not being greeted as liberators. And one of the consequences, actually, of what the Russians have done is to strengthen the Ukrainian sense of national identity, no matter what language people speak. And Ukrainian is close to Russian, but it's not the same thing. Um, so um, and there's, a, there's another layer of this, which is uh, Ukraine is very important in Russian history. Uh, this is the uh, location of the the first Slavic kingdom that really converts to Christianity. Um, historically, many Russians claim it as sort of the founding uh, site, uh, particularly Kiev, of um, of modern Russia. Others, particularly Ukrainians, don't view it that way at all. They say this is actually this uh, Ukraine is historically much more part of the West, and the state we know as Russia is really an outgrowth of Muscovy, and of um, the interaction that the uh, populations there had with uh, the uh, with the Mongols, so it's this. This is very disputed history, but but the main point I think is this: Ukraine has been an independent country for thirty years. It has been moving closer and closer to the West. It's been moving closer and closer to democratic norms, uh, imperfectly, but still moving there. And I think one of the things that troubled Putin deeply is the sense that Ukraine really was going to end up in the Western orbit because that's what the population of Ukraine wants. Hmm. Uh, and he decided he was going to put a stop to it by force, which I think will turn out to be a catastrophic mistake for him, but it's unfortunately catastrophic for the Ukrainians as well. When we think about the trade-offs, I was very confused, Elliot, in the lead-up to all this, uh, just understanding what exactly he was playing at. And then when the invasion launched in the scale that it launched at, I was even more confused because I couldn't see how you wouldn't notice that the downsides are very high. And I couldn't see what the upsides were until a friend of mine who works in intelligence in Europe said that basically Putin doesn't really see an alternative because he thinks that, I mean, my friend jokingly said that Hillary Clinton is going to orchestrate, uh, you know, a, a move to topple him, you know, using Hillary Clinton as a shorthand for all the kind of nefarious ways in which the, the West is able to insinuate itself into anti, uh, into in opposition to Russia's affairs. And that either it's this big roll of the dice or it's uh, an inevitable decline and the end of, uh, the Russia that he loves. Do, do you see that being his perspective? And is there any validity in that? I, I think there's some, but I don't think that's uh, the dominant part of this. I think, you know, one thing that strikes me is that they expected that this would be wrapped up uh, within about four or five days. I, I think he actually, really? yes, I think he actually believed, I think they were prepared for it not to be, but I think they expected this, they expected to be greeted as liberators or at least as, as brothers. Uh, they expected to be able to roll into uh, Kiev, get rid of uh, President Zelensky, 
um, and not to have to face what they're facing, which is going to be a deep, deep seated popular resistance movement in addition to the actual fighting. Um, and On what basis would Putin not think that Ukrainians absolutely hate him after 2004? 14, uh, sorry. Uh, I think they, you know, people can convince themselves of all sorts of things. <laughs> uh, and I think that is what happened. It's also the case that, you know, the, the Ukrainian military, um, at the beginning of the Donbass uh, conflict in 2014 was not particularly effective. Um, they quickly got a lot better. And in the eight years since, they've gotten much, much better. And I don't think he fully took that right. on board. I, right. I suspect he also may have been, you know, he, he has poured a lot of money into the Russian military over the last 20 years. And I suspect that uh, he's not a military man. He's certainly not a military historian. I think he's intoxicated by some of the technology that they have, some of which is quite impressive. Um, and he has completely underestimated the human factor. Um, you know, things like determination, will, small unit leadership, um, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the Ukrainians have one advantage over the Russians, it is that they are powerfully motivated um, and will get even more so the more destruction is levied on them. And the Russians have a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds who don't quite know why they're there, uh, who don't want to be doing this in a system which still has a lot of abuse, um, um, rather little initiative, um, and just a, you know, a lot of things that don't make it a particularly effective military when you're up against a serious opponent. You know, they've been they've been fighting opponents who really couldn't offer them a fair fight uh, in places like Syria mm. and even in places like Georgia. Uh, and where they did, as in Chechnya, they could just overwhelm them with a huge amount of firepower and nobody would particularly care. Well, this is different. You know, Ukraine is bigger than France uh, and it's got 42 million people and it has a history of irregular warfare, uh, to include a, an insurgency that went on for almost a decade after World War II. My worry is that if that in, if that turns into an insurgency that, well, I don't even want to go down there, we can, we can leave, uh, you know, that you end up with a Grozny or you end up with, uh, you know, Putin feeling humiliated and just flattening whole civilian uh, well, cities. Well, they've, they've begun doing it. You know, if you look at what they're doing right now in Kharkiv, if you look at the tech, the kind of weapon systems they're bringing in, they're they're going to level a lot of firepower on these big uh, Ukrainian cities. That their problem is going to be: a, the cities are very big; um, b, they will be facing much more sophisticated resistance that is much better armed. And remember, there's the there's a long border with uh, NATO countries, which are going to be funneling in large quantities yeah. of uh, of weapons. Um, and he's got a force which, given what he's trying to do, is. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's large, 150, 200,000 troops. That, that may be enough to conquer Ukraine. It may, it's certainly not enough to hold it. Right. Yeah. And we've seen with uh, America in Iraq and the Soviets in Afghanistan, <laughs> the trouble of trying to control something that even if your initial invasion phase was successful, uh, what the hell you do with it then? Um, let's talk about the geopolitical causes of this, uh, Elliot, because there's a, there's a point of view that I'm hearing a lot in the States, uh, 
It was put perhaps most articulately uh, by Jack Matlock, who was the last U.S. ambassador to the USSR, and he's he sort of represents this uh, this old diplomatic view that is basically this is chickens coming home to roost and uh, a kind of a what on earth did you expect Putin to do uh, narrative, like that at the end of the Cold War, the West made the terrible mistake of expanding NATO. Uh, we thought we could pour an, in, an infinite amount of shit on Putin and make him eat it and like it. And at some point he was going to retaliate and now he's retaliating. And, you know, as a second component to this argument, you sometimes hear people say, you know, Ukraine is in its, is in Russia's sphere of influence. You know, the US had the Monroe doctrine where basically no one could fuck with any country in the Western hemisphere at all. We had the Cuban missile crisis. Like we have never granted to small countries uh, on our doorstep total autonomy in their geopolitical posture. There's no reason why we should expect Putin to do the same. Uh, Ukraine's only been a country for 30 years. It's always been a bit of another empire. Uh, like this is basically our fault. I hear this from people as diverse as Tucker Carlson, Glenn Greenwald on the left, Tulsi Gabbard. What's your response to it? Yeah, well, that's a club I would uh, be ashamed to be part of. Um, I, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's apologetics for a guy who let us remember poisons his um, uh, his opponents, who crushes independent organizations, including some which are just trying to keep track of Stalin's crimes. Um, I, I think it's rubbish. And, and, and right, but let me just pause that. Like uh, the point that a, that a Mearsheimer style realist would make is, yeah, Putin might be an asshole domestically, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't behave as a country in the same way that countries behave that like it doesn't really make a difference whether or not a country's a democracy I, whether it's I, led I, by a good guy or a bad guy it's basically going to take its own strategic perspective as a, as paramount you know there are um i think george orwell nailed it when he said there's some ideas that are so ridiculous that you have to be an intellectual to believe them um <laughs> and so called international realism uh international relations realism is part of it it's it's the belief that individuals that don't matter, that values don't matter, and it's nonsense. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill would have been contemptuous of this. Uh, so would any other leader you'd want to be associated with. So let me let me just run through why I I reject all this. First, I think there's something unseemly about people using this crisis in which Ukrainian women and children are being massacred, uh, in which a completely unprovoked war is being launched for people to say, well, you should have listened to me 20 years ago. That's contemptible. Second thing is, um, it is clear that, um, you know, NATO expansion stopped two decades ago. So the idea that he's invading Ukraine today because Poland joined NATO, really? Um, I don't think so. Um, furthermore, I would say the, the threat that, that he is reacting to is the threat of liberty. It's the threat of democratization. It's orange revolutions. Well, I'm sorry, if people wanna be free, they wanna be free. And countries like the United States and Australia should have some sympathy with that. Uh, furthermore, I mean, the people who talk this way don't actually know a whole lot of Ukrainian history. It has been part of the West. It has been part of Western Europe for a long time. And by the way, NATO expansion is a good thing. What do you mean by that, that it's been part of Western Europe for a long time? You mean pre the end of the Cold War? Uh, yes. I mean, if, if you go, look, if you go back to the history of this part of the world, 
uh, when it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, when it was actually earlier before that, it was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, which is, you know, I mean, this is history and nobody studies yeah. history anymore, yeah. <laughs> uh, was actually one of the more tolerant, open uh, entities that was out there. Um, you know, you see that this was part of trade routes that were running, you know, from Scandinavia all the way uh, to China. It was certainly tied into um, uh, the economies of Central Europe. Um, and, you know, it is European. But but in, in general, I think the idea that we give up on any kind of self-determination is nonsense. And if we exercise the kind of um, willingness to, you know, crush uh, local governments that we didn't uh, like, we would have invaded Cuba long ago. We would have... Uh, well, we eliminated... did. We did We did try in the 60s. We, we did not... Excuse me. That's nonsense. What you was know, the we, 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 Hold on. We let a bunch of Cuban revolutionaries try it. They got hammered, and thereafter we left them alone. Yeah, we did not yeah. send in the 82nd Airborne Division. No, fair we did, enough. We, did, we but... didn't hurl 170,000 troops across the border, you know, massacring civilians as they did so. Let's no, of course. I'm not, I'm, not saying, yeah, no, I'm not saying that there's an equivalence. What I'm saying is that from the perspective of the realist, the realist will say no the realists big power. Are idiots. Josh, the realists are, are idiots. The, the realists think that World War II is, doesn't have anything to do with this guy named Hitler and this guy named Churchill <laughs> and this guy named Stalin and this guy named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's a bunch of states which they think of as billiard balls. And you've got to be an idiot to believe this. I mean, it is, it is, what is remarkable to me is the, is the erasure of the lives of the people who are actually bearing the brunt of this in, in all of our conversations about the geopolitical billiard balls. I, you know, I mentioned Tulsi Gabbard. On, on the 24th of February, the, the day of the invasion, it was literally as you know, people were enduring their first onslaught in Ukraine. She tweets, this war and suffering could easily have been avoided if the Biden administration and NATO had simply acknowledged Russia's legitimate security concerns regarding Ukraine's becoming a member of NATO, which would mean U.S. NATO forces right on Russia's border. And, it, it, and I, you know, I, I, I retweeted it, that. I mean, I, I tweeted, it's incredible. We're speaking as if this is a chess game between Russia, the U.S. and Europe, ignoring that Ukrainians exist. They have a right to run their country however they want. Stop the parochial grandstanding and have some bloody empathy. Ukrainians matter here. Not you. Yeah. Fucking Tulsi. Well, you know, it, it, look, it's no accident that uh, Tulsi Gabbard is also somebody who is, uh, you know, very close to the uh, Assad regime in Syria. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's, that's, it's bad company. Um, and, you know, in any case, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's marginal. I think one of the things that's heartening is if you look around the, the democratic world, that includes Australia, um, you know, what you see is people recognizing that this is a country that wants to determine its own future, that wants to have free elections, that wants to have the things that we have. And, um, you know, the idea that they should be consigned to kind of kleptocratic remote control from Moscow is obscene. Um, and, and, and it really, it ignores the reality of what Vladimir Putin has done. I mean, this is a guy who assassinates his opponents. That's, and, and not just his opponents. He, he assassinates people in, say, Great Britain. Mm. You know, so the, the idea, I mean, this is another part of the idiocy of so-called realism, is the idea that there's a compartment called domestic and a compartment called international and never the twain shall meet. And that's ridiculous.
I guess the concern, I mean, would we at least grant them the, uh, the point that just because you run a good democratic house at home doesn't mean that you don't do barbaric things abroad? That, that you don't say that again? That you don't do barbaric things abroad? Uh, the chances are less that you're going to do barbaric things abroad or that they'll be mitigated or that you'll stop doing them sooner. Right. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I, I mean, again, there, you, people love false dichotomies. I mean, does the United States, for that matter, does Australia or, or Great Britain or, you know, any of these countries occasionally do terrible things abroad? Yes. Unquestionably so. Are they more likely to come to terms with it than a regime like Putin's Russia or Xi Jinping's China? Absolutely. Um, and, and does it does it excuse you and, and allow you to say, well, I'm not going to take a stand because, you know, my country's done terrible things in the past. Uh, therefore, I don't have to take any moral stands. It's a coward's way out. Yeah, it, it, no, I mean, I, I think I think this is where the conversation sometimes gets derailed, though, as well, Elliot, because people people who point out what they regard as being Western hypocrisy on this can sometimes be understood to be saying that we shouldn't therefore do anything to help Ukrainians. But I do think the two points can remain dis- distinct. One one can have one can hold both ideas at the same time that we, given the position that we're in, should do everything we can to help Ukraine and oppose Russia, and also that we find ourselves historically being somewhat hypocritical on this, the point of respecting the sovereignty of all other countries and never breaching international law when we invade other countries, never supporting you know dictatorships abroad like expecting there to be a sphere of influence in our own hemispheres that, you know, like it's a little bit cute for us to go, I can't understand why Putin feels so threatened by the enlargement of NATO when we have felt threatened. Hold on, Josh, Josh. I said the issue is not, I think, the expansion of NATO. It's the contagion of democracy. That's his real worry. Right. And and, and, and to say say that that countries... are complicated and have complicated histories. Well, it's the same thing as saying individuals are complicated and have complicated histories. And it's just being adult to recognize that that's the fact, but to get the vapors over the fact that there are terrible things in the American past, as in the Australian past, and say, well, that means that therefore we shouldn't move out smartly. When you face something that is just so clearly, so clearly evil as this is, um, it's shameful, and it, it, you know, and if you begin to believe it, it paralyzes you. Right, and, but to, to take, I mean, you know, yeah, the U.S. didn't invade Cuba, but the the U.S. had a completely uh, clear position that that Russian meddling and communist uh, meddling in the Western Hemisphere was not going to be acceptable to it. And Australia, what do you mean it wasn't acceptable? I mean, I mean it, we, we, Look, if, Australia, if, I mean, Australia, we, there was a, there was there was a Soviet garrison in or. or yeah, I'll say garrison in Cuba throughout the Cold War. We certainly lived with it. We Let, certainly lived with it. Well, <laughs> you you live with what you got to live with, don't you? I mean, you, you know, you're not. They, there was no appetite we, we for launching World to, War Three. Excuse me, we could have taken Cuba without um, risking I'm, World I'm War Three. What? Without risking World War Three? We could probably so, but that really wasn't the point. I, I, you know, I find, I honestly, I find these kinds of arguments obtuse. I really do. Uh, because it's a way of avoiding the fact that we are looking at 
a country that wants to be free with a democratically elected president get ripped apart by people who have no problems showering missiles and bombs down on apartment buildings. And this allows us to be clever and sophisticated and they're dying. No, and I, mean, I, I take I take the point about the timing of it being oh, being naff, but I also take the point, uh, but I also think that it's important for us to be able to talk to people who hold this worldview in America and Australia and the West there's, in there's ways no that don't point, seem like no we're, in, we're, we're no just There's no point in talking to Tulsi Gabbard. There's no point in talking to Tulsi No, but there is a point in having an argument about her ideas that resonates with people who I might think, think that she's I don't think she has... I'm sorry. I don't think she has ideas that are worth considering. <laughs> okay, well, take take Australia then. Let's let's move it out of like Cuba, the the hoary old cliche of Cuba. Uh, you know, Australia had a, a strong alliance with the Indonesian dictatorship. Suharto supported the Indonesian invasion of East Timor. This is the this is you know talk about bombs raining down. This is a, a quasi genocide and a horrendous thing. Australia was standing up in the United Nations in the 70s and 80s defending its you know, its friend, the dictator of Indonesia. That's just one example of many, many occasions on which we in the the West have have made calculated strategic decisions to not give a shit about people having bombs raining down on them. So I think the the Putin, you know, the the sort of the Glenn Greenwald attitude is like it's a little bit rich for us now to be taking the moral high horse about bombs raining down. There have been yeah, a lot well, of again, US again, made bombs again if you shift the discussion to well, you shouldn't be taking the moral high horse. It's a way of avoiding the situation. It's a way of avoiding talking about Ukraine. Right. It's a way of shifting the discussion to, well, it's all about us. I mean, it's narcissistic among, uh, mm. among other things. But, but look, I mean, you know, all countries face a tension between their interests and their values. Australia is where it is. Um, it's Indonesia's the size that it is with the population that it is. And so period, you know, throughout its whole history, Australia kind of navigates its way through that. That still doesn't mean that you shouldn't do anything about Ukraine. It means, I mean, all, all that is, it's a way of manipulating guilt and doubt, and it has nothing to do with actually confronting a real situation where real people are dying even as we speak. Mm. I mean, it's, what it can it's, it's be an at its, well, I think what it can be at its best, Elliot, is not a not a way of playing whataboutism, and not a way of sort of self-flagellating, but potentially a way of trying to understand the worldview of people who seem completely alien to us. I mean, the perspective, if the perspective, for, uh, if if our understanding of Putin's mindset, and I'm not saying this is yours, but the layperson's understanding of Putin's mindset is he's an evil dictator and all evil dictators are basically Hitler and so there's nothing to understand here, then don't we potentially miss a lesson about his the way that he thinks that his worldview is structured, the way that he thinks that he's justified? So I'll, 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 I'll say two things. You know, you, you want to empathize with evil people. John Lukash, a great historian, once said, um, wrote a wonderful book called The Duel about Hitler and uh, Churchill in uh, kind of the crisis of 1940. And one of the points he makes is that um, Churchill was uh, a much greater um, strategist because although Hitler was in many ways very smart, um, Churchill could imagine what it was like to be Hitler and Hitler could not imagine what it was like to be Churchill. So ab about the fundamental point of empathy, absolutely. One should absolutely empathize with this guy who is what he is. On the other hand, 
this is why, you know, people like Orwell and a certain kind of uh, um, conservative would say, you know, the guy in the street who at least says he's an evil dictator understands something that Tulsi Gabbard and Glenn Greenwald and a bunch of other ma marginal characters don't understand about the world. And so I'll go, I'll, I'm willing to start with that man in the street view that, yeah, he's a, he's an evil dictator. And yes, you want to understand him, but let's start with first things first. The same, and, you know, you can go back to the 1930s. You can start the discussion by saying, this guy Hitler is really evil and he wants to do monstrous things. Or you can say, well, let's talk about the Versailles Treaty and, you know, should you really, should the border have been drawn where it was? And what about the guilt clause? All of which is perfectly true and does help explain some, not all, of, uh, of Hitler's behavior. But your point of departure should probably be is, yeah, he's an evil dictator who's willing to kill people and who's a very dangerous guy. And that's a much sounder way to begin. Mm. Certainly in terms of the timing, it makes sense to do the, uh, the, the Monday morning quarterbacking after the fact rather than during the heat of the, of the battle. In which case, let's talk about the heat of the battle. What do we do now? Well, I think we're, um, you know, on the whole, actually, I think the Biden administration, the Europeans, and dare I say it, the Australian um, government as well, which is, has pitched in, I think, and I'm glad to see it do so, yeah. are doing the right things, which is uh, we're not going to send troops into Ukraine, but we are going to arm them uh, and then putting an enormous amount of economic pressure on Russia and supporting the exposed members of NATO's eastern flank. Um, and be, because this won't stop there. I mean, if Putin does believe that, uh, in, in fact, Putin believes that NATO itself is an illegitimate alliance, that it should have gone away the way the Warsaw Pact did, uh, although his actions, of course, show why you need it, uh, because Russia is what, 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 what Russia is. So there's, there's, there, you know, I think that course of action is basically right. Um, and I think it's also extremely important to be very clear about what he's doing and to document it um, and to make Russia a pariah. I think that's really the only choice, uh, the only choice that we have. I doubt very much that this is one that you can negotiate your way out of. I don't think so. I think for Putin, actually, it, I don't think it's a... Um, an acceptable option because at some point he is going to be worried about his ability to survive what could be a, a very deep economic crisis at home and, and even um, a certain amount of domestic revulsion, mm -hmm. uh, which of which, you, you, you know, there's some very early uh, signs uh, which have immediately gotten snuffed out by, um, you know, by the police Um but which are, are clearly are clearly there. So I think on the whole, we're doing the, the right things. One of the things that people say or that people are worried about is, are we really committed to NATO? Like, is it actually true that if he started pussyfooting around with the borders of another country after this, let's suppose that, that Ukraine is not a complete calamity for him and he managed to save face in some way, or it's, a, it's just enough of a calamity that he feels like he has to go further and reassert Russian influence elsewhere. Is it really true that the full weight of the US and Western European armies come down on Russia if it attacks a NATO member? So um, I, 
I I think that on the whole, um, you know, you can never be sure until it actually happens. That part is really quite heartening. Let's remember the United States has now dispatched thousands, thousands of troops to the front line. And there's no uh, clearer sign of commitment than when you take young men and young women and you put them into harm's way. The front line meaning the eastern border of NATO. The the eastern border of Poland, but also, you know, what's striking is the Baltic states too. You know, the Germans have been sending troops, the French, the British. um, You have actually multinational units of different kinds. We've alerted the NATO response force, which is a 40,000 person force, and that's being stood up, I believe, for the first time. Um, No, it's actually quite, it's quite impressive. And when he's done some nuclear saber rattling, uh, the French chief of staff said, well, we have nuclear weapons too. Mm. So I I think on the whole, people have been quite, um, quite staunch. You know, what Putin has done, I mean, this is, uh, you know, for all the people say, well, we should understand him. We should understand him making a huge mistake. And part of his huge mistake is he, he has given new life to NATO, I mean, in a profound way. And secondly, he has guaranteed that Ukrainians will hate him and will probably hate Russia forever. Mm. And so, you know, this is, you know, once you, once people can get by trying to sympathize and feel sorry for him, uh, they should notice that actually what he's done is something that's enormously self-destructive. Are you worried about the Baltic states? Yes. Uh, you know, there are Russian-speaking minorities in Estonia, for example, in a town called Narva, um, in Lithuania and Latvia as well. Uh, and, you know, I can imagine Putin, you know, particularly if, if he's getting, either if he's getting desperate or if he's feeling very self-confident, wanting to uh, see if he can kind of crack NATO open by putting them in a position where they declare... Article 5, an attack against one is an attack against all, uh, and the cavalry don't actually show up at the rescue. Uh, but I think at this point, actually, he would that would be a misplaced confidence. The, the real problem is that the Europeans in particular have been letting their, uh, uh, their military power atrophy, although to give them credit, over the last so seven or eight years or so, actually, European defense budgets have begun going up. And in the wake of this, it's clear they're going to go way up, and particularly yeah. the Germans. It's it's quite stunning. By the way, the you know the Germans are really interesting because they've gone through a much more sophisticated version of uh, the stuff you were uh, throwing at me earlier. We're saying, well, we have such a terrible, uh, we have such a terrible record. Who are we, and all that? Mm. Um, and I think they properly turned around because you know they that you don't honor the victims of Nazism by saying, well, we're going to cut deals with um, aggressive dictators now. <laughs> right. Uh, and and it's, the, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable turnabout. I mean, it's yeah, really... Uh, I mean, part of the problem is, though, that they find themselves in a real pickle with regard to their energy dependency on Russia, isn't it? I mean, I, one thing that infuriates me is that we've sort of seen since 2008 what Putin's grievances are and what his goals are and he's telegraphed to us on a number of occasions in Georgia and Crimea and in Ukraine that you know this was certainly on the cards and this was an aspiration of his and we've done 
it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, essentially zero in Western Europe to uh, to to cleave off his the, the Western European dependence on Russian energy, which is what lines his pockets and what gives him the ultimate trump card if he can turn off the heaters in the middle of winter in Berlin. Right. So it's that's true, but it, the story's a little bit more complicated than that. There are countries like Poland, for example, which really have diversified their energy resources. So I think the Poles only get about 10% of their energy from um, uh, from Russia. But parenthetically, I'd say they are willing to defend themselves and they're quite happy actually to be a democracy and in, in NATO rather than an extension of Russia. The, the German, this is what makes the German willingness to cancel the Nord Stream 2 project, this direct pipeline from Russia, that would, would have come to them. And then the other thing which they just announced, which didn't get as much attention, is that they're building two LNG terminals. Um, I mean, the, the solution for them is clearly going to be imported LNG. Now, this is right. this is all for now. You know, they're, I mean, who knows what energy technologies uh, await, particularly in the area of fusion. So I don't think we're stuck with this forever. So they this has been a wake-up call for the Europeans and... You know, to again, to my astonishment, they're um, they're finally stepping up, and that does sort of restore one's confidence a bit in the power of uh, the power of democracy. If we fast forward to let's say the end of the decade, Elliot, and we talk again in twenty thirty, what does Ukraine look like? God only knows. Uh, I mean, you know, we're in a this we're in flux. Um, you know, I would obviously what I would like to think that it's a country that's, you know, kind of where Poland is uh, today. Um, you know, I doubt that it'll be part of NATO, but I could imagine it being part of the EU. Um, but we don't know. I mean, it's I don't know how much devastation is going to be unleashed by the Russians. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like that's really the next stage since they're you know, they haven't done tactically all that well against um, the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian um, National Guards. Um, you know, I don't know if we will continue to be as uh, staunch as we've been thus far. Um, I don't know what kind of leadership they'll have. That's why, you know, the decisions you make now are really important. I, I'll, let me say, by the way, one thing for, um, you know, I know I'm speaking to an Australian audience here. I was just at the Munich Security Conference, and I have a I have a lot of Australian friends in the military and intelligence establishment uh, and the foreign policy establishment. I was talking to one of them. He said, "You know, my uh, country has only faced an existential crisis once. That was in 1942, and that was because the Asian security order had broken down. And the Asian security order broke down because the European security order broke down." And that's why it's really important for Australia that um, the Russians be stopped in Ukraine, that NATO be strong, um, and that you people do the things you've been doing. Mm. It's uh, it's a good point, and I would uh, I would add that although you're talking to an Australian host, you are talking to a majority American audience. Still, I I just can't shake you, American listeners. Uh, God bless you for uh, for hanging in there, Elliot. It's terrific to talk to you. Thanks for such a clear-eyed uh, defense of that position. Go and uh, go and have a lovely dinner. Yeah, well, thanks very much. Good to talk to you, John. Sure. 
Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.